0: Um, Hey everybody, it's Todd. Um, Before we get to this week's podcast, uh, we have two things. One is Kathy is doing an event. This Wednesday,
1: Yeah, it's called Understanding Our Daughters, Understanding Our Girls, however you want to say it. And basically, it's a discussion about how we can better communicate, connect with our girls. There's been a lot of reports out there, you know, NBC News, The Washington Post, everywhere, about that our daughters are struggling more than usual, heightened anxiety, suicidality. And so this Wednesday is a discussion to give us some support, give us some information, research about how we can be more helpful to our girls. And it just so happens that next month, Todd and our really good friend, Dr. John Duffy are going to be hosting a discussion about understanding our sons, understanding our boys. So if you want to be a part of um, either or both of these discussions, you can join Team Zen, just scroll down um, and click on Join Team Zen. And not only do you have access to these two talks, but you have access to everything else we do on Team Zen, you know, all of our all of our speakers, all of our um, virtual communities, all of our resources that we offer. So please join us. And um, we look forward to having you listen to this conversation we're about to have with Jessica Leahy.
0: Yeah, Jessica Leahy. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. For over 20 years, Jessica has taught every grade from sixth to twelfth in both public and private schools and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont. She currently serves as a recovery coach at Santa at Stowe, a medical detox and recovery center in Stowe, Vermont, where 100% of her salary goes to a scholarship fund for young adults. So we just finished the conversation with Jess. I hope you enjoy it. She is a special human being doing some wonderful work. So hopefully you enjoy the show. Here we go. My name's Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 704. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding and always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding, which is a line we stole from Dr. Dan Siegel. (laughs) And we have a special guest with us today. Her name is Jessica Leahy. And uh, you already heard the big intro that I pre-recorded. But uh, Jessica, welcome to Zen Parenting. So glad to have you.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Um, And for the listeners, we did... So I watched... I went to an event here in town and watched Jessica do her thing on her first book uh, called The Gift of Failure. And I fell in love with it. And I read it on my Kindle and I took notes. And then Kathy and I had a... 75-minute discussion about some of the concepts in that book. Um,
1: and related it to our, and own, related kids, to
0: our like, own stuff. Here's
1: something that happened here. We
0: your- talked about math homework, intrinsic motivation, paying for grades, sticker charts, timeouts, uh, B.F. Skinner, Carol Dweck, fine, fixed mindset versus growth mindset, Uh, Michael Jordan, Nike commercial, um, controlling parents versus autonomous, supportive parents. If there's anybody listening that want to hear more about that, you could either, one, go buy Jess's book, or you can listen to the podcast, or possibly both. Mm -hmm. Uh, But today we're going to talk about two things, and we'll Maybe do the first third or so on SEL, social emotional learning. And then the second half is going to be about uh, Jess's second book called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Um, so, sweetie, why yes. don't you start us off with the first question that we want to have with Jess?
1: So, Jess, this is super good timing that you're here with us today because we have our school board election the day that this comes mm-hmm. out. And um, we, you know, in our community, which I think is happening in communities all over the country, there is some uh, definitely, I would say, a differentiation in, in opinion about things that should happen in the classroom or shouldn't happen in the classroom. One of the things that I have been hearing um, is uh, that there are some people, some candidates, and obviously some people in my community who believe that SEL is a problem. Um, I am, you uh-huh. know, you and I are just meeting today, so it's so nice to meet you, by the way. Um, but my history is <laughs> is I'm a teacher, I'm a therapist, I'm an educator now at Dominican University, and I, I teach social workers. So I talk about social emotional learning all the time. Like it is the essence of what I share and, and what I do is, you know, my... work as a therapist and and as a teacher. So can you please, I, you know, I've been, obviously I follow you on Twitter and Instagram. And so it's, I know your take on this and I love how you speak about it. So will you share with, you know, everybody who listens to the show about what SEL is and how we've gotten into conflict with something that I believe would, I think I thought we'd all agree on
2: yeah it's it's absolutely. Number one, it's infuriating to yeah. me. Number two, it's mystifying to me. but so let's make it really really clear not, I have not heard yet well for let's just start at the very beginning. social emotional learning is really the development of pro-social behaviors. pro-social behaviors are behaviors that promote, society promote interpersonal contact, uh conflict resolution, you know, regulating behaviors. I mean, self-regulation is such a huge part of it. When you talk to kindergarten teachers, for example, and you ask them what the most important thing they teach is, they say it is this SEL stuff. However, they te- they choose to phrase it, it's the social skills, right? That um, when we're talking about what's really important, especially early on in uh, in education, we're not so much talking about academics as we are talking about how do we get along with other people, how do we interact with other people, how do we resolve conflicts, all that sort of stuff. So that's SEL. I mean, when you look at the definition of SEL, what we're talking about are things that promote, uh, you know, social interactions, pro-social behaviors, that kind of thing. Um, what and the other part of that that's really important to understand is that when you look at substance use prevention programs that work, and by the way, we have objective third parties that look at. Uh, all kinds of programs, um, but uh, they definitely look at uh, substance use prevention programs for evidence of efficacy. Like, do they actually work? Which is an important question to ask, because only 57% of high schools in this country, let alone all schools, uh, but high schools in this country have any kind of um, substance use prevention program. And of that 57%, only ten percent of those programs are evidence based. So, like, it, there's this magical thinking: cross your fingers, we hope this will work. Kind of approach to substance use prevention. But what we know works for substance use prevention are essentially social emotional learning programs with health components um, and uh, refusal skills and things like that. So, you know, So here's the issue that, as far as I have been able to sort of tease this out, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, during COVID. Um, right when sort of a lot of the CRT stuff was happening and the whole Black Lives Matter thing was happening and then sort of segueing into this now uh, transphobia, you know, all this sort of stuff. People are like, okay, well, we've managed to put the highlight on CRT and why that's so evil and horrible and why it's indoctrinating people. But now what we're seeing, and when I say we, I mean the faction of people that are saying that social-emotional learning is, quote, dangerous... What we're seeing now is people are using social emotional learning programs as a way to indoctrinate children. And it's not like if I give you the and when I've sort of gone back up against some of these people that come at me on Instagram or whatever. And I say, look, this is the definition of social-emotional learning. This is what social-emotional learning is. And they'll say, yeah, 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 but it's all about the implementation, and it's teaching kids, and basically it's indoctrinating kids to be gay is is essentially their argument. Um, So... Here's the problem, though, is that social-emotional learning, we know it's incredibly important. We know it sets kids up to um, have the social skills they need, to have the interpersonal skills they need. And not just that, it builds school connectedness. And we know that school connectedness above all other educational um, uh, signposts is the one that protects kids from so many other negative life situations. It protects kids against more than any other factor among all kinds of um, negative life outcomes. So what I'm hearing from my colleagues who do a lot of speaking like I do and happen to be experts on things like child development, um, you know, empathy, that kind of stuff, a lot of those people are saying, look, I'm starting to visit certain places and people are asking me not to say the acronym SEL or talk about social emotional learning. And sometimes that's because the schools misunderstand it or they're just scared or because they're afraid that it will turn their audience off and no one will listen. And look, my job is sometimes to present difficult information, like, for example, substance use prevention that scares people, but give it to people in a way that they can hear it and not get defensive and be accepting and drop the shame and the guilt and hear it. So I get that. But on the other hand, I was just asked just recently uh, for a talk in Texas to not say SEL or mm. social emotional learning. And I have an event coming up in another conservative place um, where I'm already getting pushed back before I've even come to town about what my agenda is. Mm. And honestly, my agenda is... Here's the most effective substance use prevention programs. And by the way, I'm not even going there to talk about substance use prevention. I'm going there to talk about gift of failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm already getting all of these messages uh, from the uh, various people. I've gotten three messages now basically saying we're watching you. We're keeping an eye on your agenda. You're talking about social emotional learning in on social media, which is true mm-hmm. uh, because we know that it is those programs, social emotional learning programs are at the heart of all of the most effective substance use prevention programs. And if we suddenly say that SEL is, um, we're not allowed to talk about it, not allowed to use it. Um, I I don't know what we're gonna do because if you read Michelle Borba's uh, Unselfie, if yeah. you read Dan Siegel's work, if you, and especially his work with Tina Payne Bryson, I mean, it's all about how important these early life skills are, these pro-social early life skills, and I'm petrified, petrified for the future so, if this is the direction we're going.
0: So two quick takes. One is – part of me is like why are they even asking you to go speak if they're going to be like overseeing all the words that it's,
2: – It's actually – it's not the school. The school has been incredible – the school where I'm speaking has been incredibly supportive. Yeah. Um, it's just they're so – especially places like independent schools are so, and I get this, I've taught in independent schools. They're so afraid of their parents, the Mm -hmm. parents of their students that either because they'll pull their kids because they'll, you know, that's tuition money. Some schools that are really new, some schools that have very low, you know, budget and very low, um, you know, one kid can spell the difference between having to dip into your any, if even if you have an endowment, you know, it can be really scary to, (laughs) yeah. <laughs> some of your constituents and at an independent school, they are your constituents. So I want to make it clear the people that are um, bugging me now about this next event are, it's not the school. The yeah. school has been nothing but supportive and wonderful. It's some parents who have decided that I yeah. um, am problematic before they've you even can hear your message. I, I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it's really weird. It's a very strange situation to be in, to have to defend Not only I'm not even talking about that stuff at this coming talk, but to have to defend information that we know has efficacy, has been third party, you know, peer reviewed. It's just it's it's bananas. And it's all because of a political agenda.
0: Well, we just uh, recorded our 700th podcast and Kathy and I are like, you know, let's let's like reframe like what this podcast is all about, because we've done them for 11 years. And one of the things that we Mm -hmm. talked about was that. You know, there's IQ and then there's EQ and then there's BQ, body intelligence. Mm-hmm. And for for Kathy and I, what we've been trying to talk about for the last eleven years is the EQ. It, I can't speak for Kathy or anybody else. EQ, EQ is so much more important than IQ. And as I'm looking through the um, our local newspaper, and they're talking, some of the candidates are all about, hey, we need more math and we need more reading, and mm-hmm. we need more science, and. Mm-hmm get rid of all the SEL stuff, and I just, I have a hard time understanding it, and I, part of me wishes I can put some of my EQ skills into place so that I can connect with these people that I so significantly disagree with, and sometimes I'm successful at that, so I can listen to their viewpoint and empathize with how they got to their viewpoint, but it's really tricky for me to put that into practice with, with something I feel so, um, strongly about. So anyways, sweetie, were you going to say something or no?
1: Well, no, I mean, I I think I just, you know, going off of what Jess said, like, you know, this is completely research-based and it, and it makes, you know, all the sense in the world as far as what we're now, like, let's even talk about something like when we're asking what we want teachers to do, like there's so much pressure Mm -hmm. on teachers now. I, I can't even believe it. And we're saying you need to like, understand when there's going to be something dangerous happening and we're considering arming you. Oh, you didn't see that my kid was bullied. Oh, you didn't Know that my kid was sitting alone. Oh, you didn't know that my kid was falling behind, but then we're like, but don't talk about any emotions.
2: So there is, and uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I just I get so heated about this mainly because when you look also at some of the the big risk factors for for um, for substance use prevention, um, social ostracism is one. And, you know, where or um, academic failure or um, aggression towards other children is a major risk factor for substance use prevention during a kid's lifetime. And all of those things are best handled in an environment where you understand sort of how to help kids cultivate pro-social behaviors. The other thing is I taught for five years in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. And for the most part, so much of what my job was as a teacher there had to do with trauma informed teaching had to do with essentially just stripped down to its bare essentials, which is how do you get a kid to trust you? And how do you get them to be engaged in any way, shape or form? And most of that is based on building rapport, um, you know, Helping kids see that you're there and making eye contact and trusting and all these things that require me to be incredibly agile from a social emotional perspective and requires them to step up their game from a social emotional perspective and building coping skills and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the major problem with a lot of kids who are in, um, you know, dealing with substance use disorder early on is that they have no coping skills for their stress. And when, you know, you look back to Dan Siegel again with the whole, you have to be able to name it to tame it. And if we have to be able to name our emotions to tame our emotions and yet teachers are being told that you're not allowed to teach about emotions it's it's insanity to me we are setting up a a bunch of kids and especially now post-covid um when kids need sel more than ever we're setting a lot of kids up for um A nightmare situation in terms of substance use disorder, in terms of aggression, in terms of violence, in terms of just not being able to talk to other people and having, you know, people's discussions sort of just whiz over each other's heads because there's no ability to find common ground. And as to what you said, Todd, one of the things I want to talk about also is that we're in this situation now, and we have been for in education for a long time, where we have we're very binary. It's sort of like There's no yes and situation. Of course, there should be more math and more reading and more spelling and more all of all that stuff. And we can also be talking about social emotional learning over here. We're in a very sort of if we do that, we couldn't possibly be doing X. Um, And, you know, we've got this incredible siloing of opinion and the inability to admit that we can do two things at once and yeah. be successful at yeah, both.
0: There's like a scarcity mindset around it. So as, um, so,
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: So I, um, I started a men's group, uh, out of my living room, I don't know, like 10 years ago. And we have since evolved into an international men's organization that does a bunch of virtual things to try to give guys some of this ability to mm-hmm. understand emotions, which is not something that we're taught to do. The only emotion that we're really invited to really practice and express is anger, and, you know, there's all these others, there's a whole world of emotions out there. And um, and I just read Richard Reeves' books, uh, book a few weeks ago um, of Boys and Men. I assume you're familiar with that, Jess. And, yeah. um, and then just a few weeks ago, there's that CDC thing that came out about how our young daughters are struggling with their own mental wellness. And it's not an either or, it's a both and, um, because, you know, what Richard Reeves' proposes is like you mostly um you know blue collar middle class and below uh men are just getting lost in such a significant Mm -hmm. way so all of my energy was being is and was being directed towards helping these young men and these adult men to be able to model what sel looks like and what it means to be a Mm -hmm. whole human being and then a few weeks, you know, and then the CDC comes out and says, our daughters are lost because of their um, Mm -hmm. mental wellness and anxiety and all that. And I know it's not Mm -hmm. an either or, I just wonder, and then I heard, and I know you're a fan of uh, Dak Shepard because you talked about on Tim Ferriss's podcast. I don't know if you heard the podcast with Scott Galloway, if you heard that one or not, but he is some thought leader. He does a lot of different things and he talks about, it's not an either or it's a both. And I just wonder how you as an educator, Um, differentiate or try to help both these young men and these young women, because in some aspect, the struggles are the same, but there's Mm -hmm. a whole world of differences between an experience a young man has versus a young woman. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so so much in this question. Uh, so I I'm reminded of a conversation I had years ago with um oh sorry, with Susan Kane on her podcast and she was talking about the best way to educate introverted kids, uh, quiet kids is, of course, how she referred to them. She's the author of the book Quiet and now Bittersweet, actually. And we had this wonderful conversation where we were talking about teaching quiet kids. And it turns out that so much of what we know works really really well in education happens to be what works really, really well. Like we act as if we have to specifically do these things for quiet kids and we have to specifically do these things for you know, more extroverted kids. And it turns out that that stuff works really well for everyone. And it really comes down to being more perceptive, um, you know, meeting your audience where they are, where they are, meeting your students, where they are, meeting your kids, where they are, um, and understanding that not every kid is the same. Not every kid is going to raise their hand and blurt out an answer to something and that we have to be more perceptive about, and again, back, how do we become more perceptive (laughs) by having really good social emotional learning skills, right? So some of the best teachers I know are really talented in this area and very very perceptive so yes there are some specific things that um and again, anytime I talk about gender or sex or uh, any of these things, I say, and this is a mass you know, generalization, um, but let, you know, if you know anything about either Lisa DeMoore's work or Rachel Simmons' work, we know that, for example, girls are going to be a lot more likely to attribute failures to their own um, identity as opposed to attributing those failures to the thing they made a mistake on, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're going to be less likely to accept accept evidence of their own proficiency as evidence of their own proficiency. They're going to be less likely to internalize that. And instead they'll say things like, oh, I got lucky, or I had a good lab partner, or the timing was good or whatever. Whereas boys are a little bit better at saying, you know, I made a mistake on this, that this thing over here, I'm cool, but this thing over here, I made a mistake on. So we have issues like that. And that's a good thing for me as a teacher to keep in mind in the back of my head. But that doesn't mean that that's going to be a girl thing. And that's going to be a boy thing. Right. Um, and I think when we start talking about things that are only boy things or only girl things is when we sort of start getting into trouble in terms of like, okay, that becomes a, a, you know, an it becomes an or sort of situation in my head as opposed to an and situation in my head. And as someone, you know, as someone who has taught for a very long time, Anytime I start trying to like qualify that like, oh, this is what I do for the boys and this is what I do for the girls, that's the very the very next day someone comes and kicks me in the head and shows me that what I'm doing rather than just being. Teaching the kids in front of me instead of, you know, I talk a lot with parents about loving the kid you have, not the kid you wish you had. And I usually say to parents, I promise to teach the kids in front of me and not the classroom of kids that I wish I had. If you'll just promise that you're going to love the kids you have and not the kids you wish you had. Um, I think it all comes down to underst- being really perceptive about um, personality, emotions, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And again, that loops us back around to um, social emotional learning skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so I totally agree with you. I think in their own various ways, they're having a lot of trouble. I think right now there are people like, um, I don't know if you're aware of, talk with Zach, Zach Gottlieb. Mm-mm. So Zach Gottlieb is Lori Gottlieb, who wrote, maybe you should talk to someone. It's her son. Zach, uh, when he started high school, was really got disturbed about the degree to which kids were not being encouraged. And I have to say early on, especially boys were not being um, encouraged to talk about anxiety depression that kind of thing so he started an instagram account called talk with zach and he has started this incredible revolution he's all over the place now he just published an essay just the other day about avoiding those um college acceptance videos Mm -hmm. where people are like logging in and checking their college acceptance in real time he published that in the atlantic he's a high school kid publishing in the atlantic i mean he's doing great but he talks a lot about this that you know If we are all better able to name it, to tame it, to talk about our emotions, to talk about when we're struggling, um, we're all going to be in a lot better shape. So I do absolutely understand your impulse to classify boy-girls and boy problems and girl problems, and they definitely exist. I just tend to find that they often will end up meeting in the middle somewhere and that it's often best that we're just paying attention to the individual kid as opposed to a gender version of the individual kid.
1: Yeah, you know, at, at reading your book, which is wonderful, by the way, The Addiction Inoculation, I really... Thank you. Yeah, it's, especially, I mean, not only your story, but the history um, is really helpful, and you have a wonderful writing style. It makes it easy to read. But I was relating you. to you um, as an educator, because I am a sex educator. That's part of what I do. I, I talk with uh, parents and girls about sex education and just sex mm-hmm. overall, and... Um, and I've, I, I related in how you talk about addiction or, as we say, substance abuse, um, you know, uh, right. disorder.
2: Substance use dis- yeah, substance disorder. Yes, substance use, substance use um, disorder.
1: Yes, yes, finding the language for it. In same, you know, I struggle with it with sex education, too, because that right, you know, it's a little like a SEL. Like um, I have... Found mm-hmm. that in, this has been pre-COVID because they were not really, they have not been bringing people back in the schools even yet. But that I was working mostly in um, parochial schools around Chicagoland, going in and talking about sex ed, and um, there was a lot of obvious discomfort, pushback on me. What are you going to say? Mm-hmm. What are you, you know, having to follow right. certain rules? And I, I think that you know, it it really does just come down to. Being able to hear I, – I loved talking to parents first because it was – they got the opportunity to kind of share where they were challenged. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times – and I, I, this is what I'm getting to with you – it's a lot about their own shame. And it's a lot about yeah. their own discomfort with their history or their own discomfort about what they didn't learn or where they still are in relationship. I, mm-hmm. I still work with women and we're talking about sex lives comes up all the time. Like these are, these are, yeah. and so they don't know what to say. So my, my question to you, especially about addiction is, do you find that when you're talking to parents, the reason they're struggling with talking to their kids about addiction is because of their own discomfort with their choices or history?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's why. um, So I, I used to, you know, I do a lot of speaking on the road and I get up on stage and I talk to people about this stuff. And every single time I do, I get lots of emails and DMs from people saying, thank you for sharing that you're an alcoholic. Thank you for, you know, opening this conversation. And that's why I give people my email. I think it's really important. And um one of the things that, that I one of the things that I found is it was harder to get people to come to the substance use disorder talks than to the gift of failure talks, which okay, I get that. And a friend of mine said, you know, maybe it would be best if you started doing these like individual videos so that people could learn about it in their own space and in their own privacy of their home. But I'm always very careful to say, you know, yes, I'm making these videos and I, I make one a day and it's up on Instagram on my reels every day. Um, uh, basically making my way through all of the material on substance use disorder. And I talk about the fact that I wanted to do this because so that it would make it easier for people to hear this stuff. But also, we really have to leave the shame and the guilt behind because it drives our avoidance of talking about certain things. It drives our misperception of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't possibly hope to, you know, really give kids the precise... Protection that they need based on their very specific risk factors. Unless we're willing to be open and accepting of, oh, these are my kids' risk factors. Like, it appalls me some of the risk that I've heaped on my kids because it's either because of stuff that I've done or my genetics, which mm-hmm. I can't really control. Um, but the reality is is that you know adverse childhood experiences make kids more likely to suffer from substance use dif- disorder over their lifetime. And I'm really sorry, but. Um, divorce and separation is on that adverse childhood experiences list. Now is all divorce created equal? Absolutely not. But we have to be able to talk about the fact that an adoptions on there. And, you know, there's a bunch of other things that, well, it's not on the official one, but it's definitely on Nadine Burke Harris's list Mm -hmm. from the deepest well. We have to be able to objectively talk about these things and not launch into defensive mode because that's only going to block us from being able to hear how to best protect our kids. Right. And fear drives, some of the worst decision making that I see often among parents. So for example, I was speaking at the school, um, and I, I won't identify them because it was, you know. Um, I was speaking at a school, and I came to find out after I spoke at this school, and it would have affected my decision to speak there, that if you're gay at this school, you get kicked out. It's mm. a religious school. Now, the parents' biggest fear as it was conveyed to me was sex trafficking in this community. And I had to make it really clear that kids at the highest risk for being sex trafficked are LGBTQ yeah. kids who are not supported by the adults in their family and community. Okay. So if you're, if you're really most worried about protecting your kids from being sex trafficked, why on earth is your stance that you are bad and have to be kicked out of our community if you're LGBTQ. So working at cross purposes makes no sense to me. And I'm also just not willing to suffer fools. So when, if you're telling me something that is in direct contradiction to the evidence that I have that it will help protect your kid, and frankly, my entire adult life has been about protecting children. I went to law school in order to become a juvenile attorney and work in juvenile court. I worked on teen court. I ran teen court in my area. I have been a, was a teacher for 20 years. I mean, almost all of the work that I've done in my adult life, with the very short, the exception of the work I did right after college and the most boring job in the entire world at a mutual fund company, <laughs> almost everything I've ever done has been about protecting children. And so if you're going to look me in the eye and tell me, me that you want to protect your children, but you're going to do this thing that puts your child at incredible risk for the thing you say you're most scared of, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to hopefully say it in a way that will allow you to hear it, because I think, you know, I think we have to be aware that we can't make any inroads into changing behavior unless people are able to hear what we have to say about evidence. Um, But it just does not make any sense to me. So this whole SEL thing that makes no sense to me, you know. It's just we're in a place where we're really, really scared of things that aren't necessarily things we need to be most scared of. And um, that often we're working counter to protecting our kids in the best way from that yeah.
0: thing we're really scared of. Yeah. Um. Jess, can you? And
2: if shame and guilt is going to shield us, <laughs> if shame and guilt is going to prevent us from saying, oh, these are my kids' very specific risk factors. And here are the very specific protections that I could use in order to protect them and change their rate of risk. Um, you know, the, I need to be doing those things. It's it's really, it stymies me sometimes, yeah, but I get it. It can be very hard to hear things about mistakes you've made or our flaws. I can be very defensive and I get it. Yeah. I get it.
0: Um, so you uh, self-describe as a research nerd. You love Taking all I the information, it. right? Yes, and um, you know, one of the things I was listening to you on Tim Ferriss yesterday, uh, and that was an interview from a few years ago. Uh, but I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you could just share with the listeners who may or may not read your book, who may or may not follow you on Instagram, just share some of the research. Uh, you know, a few of the main bullet points. Because one of the things that surprised mm-hmm. me was I figured kids were getting more drunk today than they were when we were young. And obviously the opposite is true. I'm wondering if you can speak yeah. to that and any other kind of big data that we would probably mm-hmm. want to know about.
2: So that school one that I told you about before, the fact that only 57% of high schools, and by the way, if we're waiting until high school, if we're waiting till middle school to start talking about substance use disorder, we're waiting way too long. The best, most effective programs um, for preventing substance use disorder start in pre-K and K and talk about bodily autonomy and Uh, you know, things that we don't swallow, like toothpaste versus things that we do swallow. And, you know, just little uh, public health, you know, here's how to keep our bodies safe kind of stuff. Um, And then developmentally evolve with the kid. Uh, But then little things like, you know, I almost didn't put a college chapter in the book, because I thought, oh, man, you know, everybody's going to drink in college. And that's just not true. And, And if you look at who drinks in college and how much alcohol is consumed in college? It is the vast, vast minority of people who are drinking. The vast, vast majority of the alcohol in college. Other little things like, um, you know, the inform. What we know about the best substance use prevention is that it is good information that helps kids make better decisions. the The longer a kid, the older a kid gets before they have their first sip. Smoke whatever. Um, the lower their lifelong risk of developing substance use disorder. So if you have an eighth grade kid and they have their first drink in eighth grade, they have you know they're approaching a fifty percent chance of developing substance use disorder over their lifetime. But if we can get them to to. 10th grade, we reduce that by at least half. And if we get to 12th grade, we're down near sort of where substance use disorder is in the general population. So, And we're protecting their brains. So, you know, adolescents have uh, just monumental brain development and it needs to happen unimpeded without other chemicals glomming up some of those receptors and throwing off things like our dopamine cycles, um, our dopamine circuitry. Uh, Little things like You know, if an eighth grader is approached with, you know, and someone says, oh, come on, it's no big deal. And, you know, by the way, everybody does it. But your eighth grader knows that actually less than 25 percent of eighth graders have more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. That's important information for them to have to understand that, oh, okay, whoever is approaching me has bogus information and they don't need to say anything to that person, but it gives them the self-efficacy they need in order to feel like they can say no and stick to their guns. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that are hugely preventative in for substance use disorder are things like self-efficacy, like good solid refusal skills, like the understanding why. We know that you know because I said so, or just say no, or um, scare tactics. Those things don't work. Um, scared straight definitely doesn't work. Uh, law enforcement approaches to substance use prevention have notoriously been big failures. And in fact, you know, the early iterations of DARE actually made it so the kids were more likely to use drugs and alcohol as opposed to less. So there were just lots of little surprises along the way. And I think the cool thing about my job is almost everything I write is about something I'm curious about mm-hmm. and I want the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I realized, when I got help from my substance use disorder. I got sober June 7th, 2013. So I will, I've been sober almost 10 years. Um, You know, I was really in danger there. I was a serious alcoholic. And the minute I got sober myself, my first thought went to, okay, well, how do I stop this this pattern. I've come from the family with alcoholism and substance uh, use disorder, and so does my husband. And so our genetics are kind of stacked. And by the way, what does that even mean? What are the genetics? What does that do to my kids' risk factors? So I was looking for one resource that really came at it from a parenting and an education perspective and I couldn't find that. And so the cool thing is I got to write that without a horse in any particular race. like if someone said to me, If your kids friends do drugs, your kids will be more likely to do drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. Sounds totally logical. But what does that mean? What do those statistics really mean? How much of that is a myth? How much of that is real, Um, especially given that my son had friends who were using substances and I wanted to understand what that meant for him. Um, I needed to understand what the genetics piece meant. And so I get to just, you know, I researched for a full year before I ever even wrote the proposal for mm. the addiction inoculation. And then, you know, I'm lucky enough to to be able to go into all the research, read all the research, love every minute of it, and then interpret it and, and explain it to people who don't necessarily want to read it themselves. and. I'm married to a statistician and I am the mother of a statistician. (laughs) So um, anytime I cite data, someone in my family is going to say, where are you getting that data? Mm -hmm. And they're going to say, I'm going to need to see that. And P.S., I'm going to call it all out any and all confounders in that data or how you could say it more clearly or how you could say it without overstating the power Mm -hmm. of that data, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's a very humbling experience, not just writing for the public writing for the people in my own family. So just recently, um, the the immense relief I felt, I found out this year that I'm getting uh, an award from the Research Society on oh, Alcohol. Mm-hmm. They're giving me an award for the addiction inoculation for the media award for best translating, you know, mm-hmm. this research into You know a format for for the general population and i was able to you know do this big sigh of relief i'm like okay the experts (laughs) think i did an okay job because i'm so worried about you know getting the research right it's it's essential that i get the research right that's all of my credibility so and sometimes the research doesn't reveal what we want it to reveal and that's a bummer but we still have to listen I know.
1: Well, and then you can like share that award with your husband and your son and say, we did this together.
2: Um, I love that. Well, and what's so interesting, can I say really quickly, yeah. what's really interesting is that the biggest pushback I get is when I bust a myth that people are really emotionally invested totally. in. Like the European myth. like. Yes. The people who are like, okay, well, I give my kids sips at home because I really want to raise them like those European kids who understand moderation and don't necessarily go all crazy when alcohol is suddenly available. And I was so invested in that myth myself that that's how I raised my younger, my older child, right? Mm -hmm. My son, Ben, got to have sips, got to have his own beer every once in a while, that kind of thing. Um, And then I researched the addiction inoculation, and I found out that actually that runs absolutely 100% counter to what we know works, um, you know, with some statistical confounders that I always call out, which is that parents that have a consistent, clear message of no, not until, in my language, not until your brain is done developing. You could say not until it's legal, but for your kids, there would be like arbitrary Right. 21 is arbitrary 18 21 legal that means that no. what it so i go with not until your brain is done developing um that those kids have much lower levels of substance use disorder and p.s if we're holding up the european union as our end-all be-all romantic ideal for how we want our kids to be over their lifetime the world health organization points out that the european union as a whole both the European region, which includes uh, Russia and various other places that in what used to be the Eastern Bloc. But the European Union has the highest rate of substance use disorder uh, – sorry, has the highest rate of substance use, the highest rate of drinking – sorry, just drinking, in the entire world and the highest level of illness and death attributable to alcohol consumption in the entire world. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to hold up any one region as being the romantic ideal for how our kids should comport themselves with alcohol, I'm not going to hold up the EU mm-hmm. as my ideal. Mm-hmm. And the, and what's fascinating is when people call out the exceptions, they're actually driving home the point because the exceptions, usually Southern Europe, are because there is a community taboo, a, a societal taboo against really overwhelming public and a really um, big um, against public intoxication, right? So the co- the countries that that where people don't tend to drink as much, it's because their sort of community standards. Are You know, we really don't get falling over drunk in public. So you can create your own community standards within your own family, your own community, your own school, your own city, your own country. And that can be a community standard that can help make you be an exception to a larger rule. So, yes, there are exceptions to that rule. And let's talk about why there are exceptions to that rule, because it further makes the argument.
1: Well, so. and that, you know, bring, you know, that we're just going to cycle right back through SEL, you know, social emotional learning, because one of the things I love that you say in many forms in your writing and some interviews I've heard with you is about what your students have told you, or maybe even your own kids have told you is what what would have been helpful or what would you have liked adults or parents to tell right. you and what they want is tell us the truth, which is that. Yeah. Having a glass of wine can decrease your anxiety. It may make you feel like even when you were talking about your own sobriety, you were talking about the uh, the drink that you missed is the one you have before you go to the party, the one that kind of chills all those nerves, which we can all relate to. And I think when we approach things with our children in this very like, well, it's bad, don't do it. It's going to be in, you know, some of we can give them the research about brain development. All this is all good. But when we don't tell them the truth that it can or for some, it decreases their anxiety, we aren't giving them the full picture and and all the information they need to go forward. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So if we say, let's take it from the other angle, which is, you know, and this came from one of my students when, when I was teaching at the rehab, I asked them the question, what in your most receptive moment could an adult have said to you that would make you at least pause when yeah. you and think about your substance use? Um, and this was an article I wrote for my column in the New York Times. And it um, all of the kids said honest information like when you say drugs are bad, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Why would so many people do something that is quote unquote bad? Well, the reality is is that yes, in the short term, I drank f- for myself, for example, because I suffer from anxiety disorder I have since i it was it became debilitating when I was about twenty four. And I initially drank in order to manage my anxiety, either my social anxiety or just the anxiety I was feeling over being able to do, you know, getting everything done. And, um, The problem is is that it compounds anxiety over the long term. If you're drinking to help you fall asleep, well, it makes sleep disorders worse, makes anxiety worse. Um, If a kid with ADD, for example, says, you know, I smoke weed because it helps my brain be quiet, well, he's being honest. It does help in the short term with helping your brain be quiet, but it is not a good long-term solution, which is why the term self-medicating is a problematic term because it can medicate you in a way that is effective over the short term but not over the long term so the the other problem though is if that's the only message that kids are hearing so for example in the addiction inoculation I profile one of my former students actually named Georgia Georgia was the only um substance use prevention information she got was from someone who came to her school who had been an al- who was an alcoholic and talked about how f- far he fell and why he drank and blah 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 and he talked about the fact that when you drink it helps you not feel anything and he didn't want to feel anything and my student Georgia didn't want to feel anything either she's like so that's all she heard was cool if i drink it'll quiet this incredibly painful anxiety I have going on. And it did. And so where did that end? You know, where did she end up? Well, for her drinking quieted things at first, and then it got worse and worse and worse. And she, you know, she ended up, it ended up in a terrible place for her. Um, So, you know, giving them all that information, especially if it's the only information that they're getting um, can be problematic, which is why we need to give them, Yes, drugs are harmful to your brain. This is why. Here's what's happening with your adolescent brain. Here's why it needs to happen unimpeded, without the intrusion of other chemicals and neurotrans- messing up the neurotransmitter receptors. Um, here's why, especially how with how the adolescent brain works, it can exacerbate you know the stuff that tends to get you into trouble and you know just all of the stuff that actually is real and true about um, our brains when we're in adolescence and and how drugs and alcohol hijack those brains in a permanent way, sometimes in a permanent way, sometimes in a short-term way. Uh, Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, I think Mm -hmm. is invaluable for that. It helps people understand their dopamine cycle in their brain and why when we take wine to help, you know, we drink some wine to make us feel better, we're going to end up in a lower place than where we started because the dopamine, as Anna calls them, the dopamine gremlins run on over to the other side of the scale and then it tips in the direction of pain when we've tipped it in the direction of pleasure using um, something like wine. So you know, giving kids the f- full picture and giving them the credit to make good decisions based on that information, trusting them, you know, reasonably so um, to make good decisions, I think it, it can go a huge distance to helping kids make better decisions.
0: Oh, yeah. well, and kind of to Cat, uh, what Kathy said about how we're coming back to SEL, like the whole idea of um, using anything to numb out, I, I use the term numbing out or escape from, mm-hmm. insert your own phrase, is, is exactly the short-term fix that no nothing long term actually gets fixed in that way and you know if we can feel our feelings in our body and express them in a healthy way instead of you know couldn't it's not just substance like my numbing out as i go to my computer and I can get my email like it's just about how can we be emotionally intelligent name it in our body, express it in a way, as opposed to going to whatever crutch yours might be. Some people it's booze, some people it's weed, some people it's working out, some people it's my email. I mean, that's where I go. And it's just the ability to be able to feel our feelings and feel the discomfort of what those feelings are. Then we're in a place where we can actually deal with the situation. Um, and, but, and I don't even know can if Can I there's...
2: put a quick caveat? Can sure. I stick a quick caveat in there? Sure. The caveat though, however- um, You know, when you are dealing with sort of everyday, you know, small T trauma, that's Mm -hmm. a great plan when you're dealing with kids uh, who have suffered sexual and physical abuse, who have suffered, you know, uh, just some torturous Mm -hmm. uh, family situations. um, Some of the kids that I've taught in the rehab were in group homes where they were being systematically abused. Some of those kids say, especially since they have no access to anyone who's going to give them any kind of mental health issue, you know, help. Early intervention is always going to be the answer in terms of helping deal with help, helping kids, you know, name their emotions, tame their emotions, that kind of stuff really early on. The one caveat I want to just introduce here is that some people have told me that when they're in these just situations where there is no out for them, where they have no self-efficacy because nothing they can do is going to change the situation that they're in. Many of them say, look, I used because it was the only Mm -hmm. thing that would allow me to stay alive Mm -hmm. long enough so that I could get a place, get to a place where I could receive treatment. So, you know, we're all here talking, you know, especially, and I speak for myself, me with my little T trauma, me with my little S stresses during the day. Yeah. I need to, to learn to cope with my emotions and deal with my, you know, imposter syndrome so that I don't have to take a drink before I go to that party. I just want to remind you that there are some people dealing with stuff that's much bigger, the capital letter S and T's that, um, that are, is going to require more than, you know, we need to buck up and learn how to deal with it. And this is where terms like resilience get really overused and where it, I worry that we're not see- seeing the full scope of some of these problems. And that's why I love that Chris Heron quote that I quote in the, in the addiction inoculation, which is we tend to talk so much about the last day. Like my last day was when I got super drunk at my mom's um, birthday party, got blackout drunk. It was hideous. It was horrible. It was humiliating. Um, but we need to talk more about the first day. Mm-hmm. Why does a kid on that first day that they pick up, need so desperately to get outside of themselves numb themselves feel like they are more than so that they can feel like they can deserve to take up space and be loved and there are kids out there that do not feel like they even deserve to take up space on this planet mm-hmm. and i want to make sure that we nod to those kids and say it's not as simple as you know buck up nape your emotions so yeah. that you contain yeah. your emotions i just want
0: to make sure that no, that's, that's good a, that's an important point mm-hmm. and i appreciate you um you know, reframing that a bit, or 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 sharing it in a little bit different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you talk a lot about um, the how to have these conversations with your kids, and maybe we'll talk about one of what those conversations may look like. But for me, and tell me if I'm wrong. I think the best thing, because there is much parents listening to this podcast right now, and my guess is a lot of them are like, "How do I have this conversation with my kids?" That's an important question to ask, and it's important to empower them with those tools. But for me, modeling is so much more important than anything we ever say to them. <laughs> yeah would you would you concur with that? Like, even if you say the wrong things, if you are behaving in a way that is a healthy relationship with drugs or alcohol or whatever, that's so much more impactful than any conversation that we ever have.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the question I get a lot is, um, I love this question. Does this mean that I can't drink in front of my kids? And one of the things um, that I at one of the talks I've, I've been able to do that's fascinating is I do talks for I've done a couple of these for people who work in the alcohol industry, like whose mortgage is getting paid by the alcohol industry, that kind of thing. And so these people are like, what do I do with my messaging around my kid? Like, am I allowed to drink in front of my kid? Am I allowed to, you know, the parties that we have at our house are based around alcohol because that's my business, that kind of thing. And I. I always say, I'm never going to tell you that you shouldn't drink in front of your kid. Although if you have an issue with substance use disorder, maybe you need to think about that and how you're drinking in front of your kids. But um, one of the things we need to think about is our messaging around why we're drinking. So if we're coming home from work and we're saying, you know, oh, gosh, today just It was. I offended people. I sent a, you know, reply all on an email instead of reply, and uh, I don't know. I might get fired. I just. I need a drink so badly. Or we're going to Grandma's house for Thanksgiving, and there better be a lot of wine there. I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. And frankly, this is hits home for me because. I used to drink the most when I used to have to go to my parents' house, and I would feel a lot of anxiety around like managing everyone else's social stuff, and is anyone going to offend anyone, and all that kind of stuff. I had to kind of manage that myself. So, of course, I was really anxious, and I would sneak drinks when I was at my parents' house because I was freaked out. That kind of messaging is really What we need to keep an eye on for kids, because if we're teaching them in order to manage our emotions, in order to come down from big emotions, in order to not think about something and chill, that we have to introduce the substance to our bodies. That's a problematic way of communicating with kids. If we're talking to our kids about like, you know, we're going out and we're, you know, drinking in order to elevate already, you know, positive feelings mainly because what we know is that problematic drinking tends to be tens, not always tends to be kids or people who, um, you know, withdraw, you know, isolate themselves, drink in order to manage big, sad emotions, that kind of thing. Whereas people who tend to drink have a few drinks in order to elevate already good feelings, it tends to be less problematic. But anyway, you're a hundred percent right. The messaging in front of our kids um, from, for everything, like if I, tell my kids, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry you made this big mistake or you really screwed up that test, but what I really care about is that you learn from this, and what are you going to learn from this? But if what I'm showing them that all is that all I care about is the grades because I want them to get into the, an Ivy League college, they're not going to believe me when I say that what I care about is that you learn from this. Um, so in all of our messaging to kids, we need to be paying attention to what our modeling is messaging to them as much as what we're, comes out of our mouth. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing that has been interestingly helpful to us, and it sounds like it has been to you, is we have addiction on, you know, both sides of our family. And Todd's sister, uh, Shane, is, has, you know, been in, how many years is she has now? 26, 26 years. So mm-hmm. when our girls were little, being able to have Shane talk to them about her experiences, even when they were really young, yeah. like this is, yep. this is open dialogue, ongoing dialogue, you know, what it looked like for her, what her experience was. And so our girls have grown up in an environment where talking about brain development and talking about what you know what's in your genetics and on top of that what Shane's experience was has been very positive. Now, some feedback we've gotten from other people, which I know you'll have something to say about is you don't want to tell them that they're too young to understand that. You know, you get all that kind of feedback from people, but you know, tell us more about how to, you know, this, this might be our last question here, but tell us more about how to share our own experience and the the reality of our family, our genetics and our culture with our kids.
2: So genetics is about 50 to 60 percent of the risk picture that comes from Dr. Mark Shukit at uh, University of California at San Diego. It's sort of the best the best guesstimate we have right now in terms of like 50 to 60 percent of the pictures uh, uh, of the risk picture is genetics. And then about 40 to 50 percent of that is sort of trauma and a bunch of these other things sort of layered in there. Um, my kids have known from as early as possible that substance use disorder runs in our family, even from before I was willing to admit that I had a problem. And my husband and I talked about it because we knew we were going to have to keep a really close eye on each other. Mm. If I'm noticing my husband's drinking or whatever, starting to look a little problematic, we'll call each other on it. Now, I was really good at hiding my drinking. So He it's no no fault of his that he didn't catch me because I was I had to convince friends of mine that I had a problem (laughs) because I did most of my drinking, my heavy drinking by myself, isolated by myself, blah, blah, blah. Although my kids were going to be start to notice soon. Um, So and then the other thing that's really important about that is so a lot of so, for example, my older kid, Ben, talked about the fact that when he was in high school, at least in his own mind. Oh, I have a genetic predisposition for substance use disorder. Could it wasn't often the sole reason he didn't pick up a beer from a friend, but it was a contributing factor mm-hmm. in why he didn't pick up a, a you know a beer. And so I try to give him as many contributing factors as possible. Um, however, when before, so my parent who has substance use disorder is now in recovery. But before that parent got into recovery, they relapsed Mm. at Christmas Mm. when everyone had descended and was staying at their house. My sister from a different place with her two kids, me from a different place with my two kids. It was easy enough for me to pick up and drive home when that relapse happened, but my sister was gonna have to go stay in a hotel. It blew up Christmas. It was traumatic for everyone, Mm. it was horrible. We lost Christmas that year. Kids were crying, it was terrible. We were very clear why that happened. We had to take you out of that situation because your grandparent relapsed Mm. on alcohol. And here's what that means. It is my job as your mom and your dad's job as your dad to keep you safe from relatives with substance use disorder and some of the fallout from that. And it might help your grandparent get closer to realizing that they need to stay sober if they realize that their access to the grandchildren are going to Mm -hmm. be, it's going to be limited because Mm -hmm. some, from the time you were really little, I've had to assess every single time I go over to their house, whether or not it's safe for me to leave you there. And that's not a position I want to be in as a mom. And it's certainly not a risk I want to take with you. So they've understood that from very early on, and it's become a really important object lesson in just how much substance use disorder can blow a family wide open Mm -hmm. and how, Look how hard that parent is. You know, my parent that is um, in recovery now has had to work really hard to get to that place. And by the way, that relapse taught them a lot. That was mm-hmm. not just an all negative situation. Relapse is a really, really important learning mm-hmm. opportunity for those of us with substance use disorder for identifying what puts us at danger for relapse. And that was their last relapse. And I think it was a really important one. Mm-hmm. And if my kids ever have issues with substances, which they very well may, 50 to 60%, as I said, of this risk picture is this, is, is genetics. However, I talk a lot about substance use disorders being like a 100-piece puzzle. The more pieces that are in place, the closer you are to realizing you need help, right? My dad was the 100th piece for me who came in and said, you know, I, I think, you know, it's time. You really need help. I know what an alcoholic looks like. You're an alcoholic. At that point, I was ready to get help. And the prevention stuff I talk about in the addiction inoculation is not just prevention to help your kids hopefully not have issues with substance use disorder or to lower their lifelong risk. It is also the pieces of that puzzle. So hopefully that Christmas, they're having a mom who's an alcoholic, having all these things that have happened over time. um, thinking about their genetics, all of that stuff are going to be those pieces so that maybe my kids will start at, I don't know, piece 65 if they start to have a problem with substances. And we talk all the time about the difference between substance use and substance misuse um, and what that looks like and what it feels like when you're just needing that beer, just a little too much. We Mm -hmm. have to talk about this stuff Because those are the object lessons. And kids, uh, by the way, talking about age, in homes where alcohol, where there's a heavy alcohol user, kids as young as three can tell the difference between an alcoholic beverage and a non-alcoholic beverage. So it's not too early. Hmm. They notice things that we don't think they notice. I give lots of examples of this in the book. Um, so it's really important to start these conversations early and it's, it's, you know, you know, your kid best and go with the, you know, the cognitive development of your own kid. But I try to offer, um, insight into what various kids can handle at various ages, um, with the help of some experts that I interviewed and rely on heavily. You
0: do. Um, as we get ready to close here, um, one of my favorite parts about, you know, how you show up in your writing and your Instagram posts is your just sheer vulnerability. And I just, I don't know if this will make sense, but I remember I was like 32, you know, you share your own, story. And I don't identify as an addict. I don't think, I think I got lucky. My, I think my sister was predisposed and she just happened to have that gene. And then all these other puzzle pieces were in place that had her become addictive. But I remember I was like 32 years old. I had two kids. One was an infant and my older daughter at the time was like two or three years old. And I had to excuse myself from breakfast the next morning. I was throwing up behind a dumpster and I'm just like, yeah, how did I get here? Like what, how is yeah. this happening? These are, I have to like leave breakfast because I was out drinking with my friends and. I just consider myself so. I threw up
2: in the garden. You had a dumpster to <laughs> yeah, go behind. I used right. to have to leave. The, our house was super tiny. Right. And we could hear everything else that was going on in the house. So I would leave the house in the middle of the night to go throw up in my garden. It was lovely. Yeah, it's right? a lovely life. Uh,
0: it's, yeah, that's talk That's a, that is an interesting moment in anybody's life. And I just feel very lucky. <laughs> like it wasn't because I worked any harder. I mean, I, in a way, I'm more inspired by my sister because she, um, mm-hmm she, I don't want to say she, she was predisposed, but maybe she had the gene that I didn't. And she was lucky enough to ta- mm-hmm. do one twenty-eight day program and hasn't had a, a sip since. I just, how, how many people get sober after one stint at rehab? I, is that, it's gotta be a small amount, right? The
2: younger, uh, actually the younger you are. So adolescence, the, the root, I'm hoping to write more about this, but recovery for uh, among young adults and adolescents can often look different for adults. And it's, if you can get through, if you can go through a 28 day program and we know for a fact that 28 days is just too short of a period Mm -hmm. of time, ideally 90 days would be sort of what insurance (sighs) provides for. And it's not always the case. Um, But the younger you are, the younger you get sober just because your entire brain isn't all hooked up yet. It can be even harder. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, I'm so fascinated by the route to recovery That younger people make. And anytime I run into someone at a recovery meeting or out in the world, Who got sober young? Um, I'm probably the thousandth person who has said this to them, which is, you know, oh my gosh, I would give anything to have figured it out as young as you did. And you know, there it's a heavy burden they carry because they have they have to hear this all the time from people who really wish they could have gotten there young, but it's just really hard to get and stay sober as a young person when your brain's not fully connected yet. Right.
1: Yeah, and you know, ending on this pot this optimistic note because I love that you say this, and we, you know, Todd and I have experienced this in many ways in our life with our kids and. just ourselves is that when a thing happens, if it be that your kid gets drunk and you get a call to come pick them up, or they're at the police station, or you find them in their room, or you find wheat, whatever you know, my own clients, I hear this all the time. And I always say, this is your opportunity. This is the this is your communication time. This is where you're going to take it up a notch. And I don't mean in consequences. I mean, in communication and more language and more vulnerability. So will you share that, you know, because I you say this all the time, but, you know, when things happen, we
2: we use it to learn. Yeah. And it's not a, a lot of parents are really scared that if their kid gets drunk, um, that that's it. It's yeah. over. You know, now they're, uh, it's sort of like, it, it reminds me a lot of my husband grew up in Utah and something that they used to talk about, especially to girls in the LDS culture used to, they don't do it. I hope they don't do it as much now, but they, uh, a lot of Girls who grew up uh, with my husband in Salt Lake City referred to this, you know, used gum thing where Mm. um, they say that no man will want to marry a piece of gum that's been chewed up and spit out. Right. So it's sort of like if you have sex as a girl that you are used up. And I think a lot of parents come to this um, discussion of what if my kid screws up as a very like. Mm. You're ruined. It's like it's over now. There's nothing I can do now because the seal has been broken or Pandora's jars, but, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's not how it is. These are all learning opportunities. Um, I have been fortunate enough to be there for a lot of people to get into recovery and I get texts from a lot of people as they're sort of going through this process. And I get from this one person that I uh, sort of helped get to his first meeting. He texts me all the time and he's relapsed like four times. Mm -hmm. And he, but he continues to text me and say, I did it. I relapsed again. I'm so humiliated, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, what did we learn this time? Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine, Amanda, who's in, um, who's in recovery as well. She talks about this a lot when she relapsed during COVID she knew that she had relapsed. She was relapsing in her head way before she picked up that first drink. And so the more we can learn about what that mindset feels like when we are making excuses for ourselves and we're about to relapse, the reason, Todd, you talked about Dak Shepard, the reason, um, Besides the fact that I got to be an armchair expert, which was super (laughs) cool. But he has an episode called Day 7, about seven days after he had relapsed and had to come clean, not only to his audience, but to the people who loved him the most. He did an incredible service there because he was able to talk about how his brain tricked him into getting, taking those drugs again. And even someone with 16 years of sobriety, you know, we talk about addiction as being this incredibly sneaky thing. And um, so the more we talk about it, the better. The more we talk about learning opportunities, the better. The more we talk about, yeah, 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 you screwed up. But what are we going to learn from this? Because that's the only way that we can make value out of this experience. That's the conversation. The process rather than the end product. Always bring it back to process of learning, process of becoming, process of whatever, um, rather than sort of picturing this imaginary, magical thinking endpoint all the time process, process, process. What'd we learn from it?
0: Um, so just as two books are the gift of failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. And what year did gift of failure come out? 2015, 2015, thousand and fifteen. the addiction inoculation, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence. And how many years has that been? Two, 2021, 22 years. Um, and yep. how would people follow you What's your Instagram, all that good stuff?
2: Yeah, so everything is always at jessicalahey.com, including the top blog post, pinned blog post is always a table of contents for all of those daily videos that are up at Instagram. I try to update it every couple of days. Um, and then my Instagram is at Teacher Leahy. I'm at Jess Leahy on Twitter and everywhere else, but at Teacher Leahy
0: on Instagram. Well, and I remember when I signed up for your. So when I saw you speak at the Glenn Bard parenting series, you're like, if you want to sign up for the newsletter, I promise I won't uh, inundate you. And I think I get a newsletter from <laughs> you like every six weeks, which is great because, you know, we're so used to like seeing the same oh, thing. Oh, it's
2: way it's less frequent than is that. It less than it's that? just. Uh, Yes, newsletter stuff, newsletters are hard because, well, here's why newsletters are hard. Like you would think that publishing an article would be hard, but I used to use MailChimp. I don't anymore, but when I use MailChimp, it would have this little icon of this monkey sweating it out because you're about to hit launch on something that could have typos on it. And so I think every writer just worries that you're going to send something out that, you know, and it's a big production to make sure that you, you know, make sure everything's right. And so it's actually even less frequent than every six weeks. But and I try to and I never, ever share information. And I get asked all the time to please blog about this thing of mine for all of your listeners and all your readers. And I'm like, oh, no, I protect them like crazy because that is an incredible trust to give me your email address so not
0: very often um, well, thank you so much for joining us. And, um, sweetie, anything else?
1: No, just that I so appreciate this conversation, Jess. Thanks for doing what you do and being And you, oh, you, We you. see you connected with a lot of our favorite people who have been at our conferences around our show. You know, Debbie Reber, I saw you just did something with her. And I hear you speak about tonight, ju- actually.
2: Uh, oh, is this, it tonight? Uh, this is uh, tonight, the day we're recording this, which may not be tonight, the day you're listening to yes. this. But I actually she's fantastic. She's my. um my go-to resource for all kid, all things differently wired. Got I just it. love her so much, and so tonight we're going to be talking about substance use prevention among differently wired kids. Yeah. So I, and the fun thing is, I learn something every single time I have a conversation about this stuff.
1: Yeah. So do we, and we just really appreciate your work. So thank you for doing what you do. Thanks for taking the time with us and everybody who's listening. And you've been a real inspiration to Todd and I. So thank you.
0: And we. Will oh, thank
2: you so much. I'm so grateful. And
1: we will see you next time on Zen Parenting Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are grateful for your support. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen Circle, our very own app that includes our virtual community, exclusive content, and support from us.
0: You could also purchase Kathy's award-winning book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World or subscribe to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com slash resources. And if you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we'll talk to you again next week.